about 2,500 years ago. Let me say that again so that sinks in. Okay, About 2,500 years ago, 25 centuries, there was a young and beautiful Jewish girl whose name was Esther. God used that young Jewish girl to deliver her people from the hands of certain death and destruction by the nation, the Gentile nation that held them captive. The story begins for us. It's recorded, of course, in the book of Esther. And the story begins with the brutal King Xerxes having dismissed his queen and now searching for another one, his advisors conduct something that would be the equivalent of a Persian Miss America contest. And all the young and beautiful virgins are brought into his harem. And then one by one, they spend the night with the king to see which one he would choose to be his new queen. The story tells us that Xerxes chose the young Esther because she was so beautiful. As the story unfolds for us, her older cousin Mordecai learns about a plot, a plot hatched by one of Xerxes' nobles named Haman, a plot through which he intends to exterminate the Jewish nation. Haman had tricked Xerxes into signing a particular decree. It said on a certain day, all of the Jewish people within the realm of the Persian Empire would be rounded up and their lives snuffed out. Facing certain extinction, Mordecai tells Esther that she must go before the king and plead for the life of her people. According to the law of the land, you could not go before the king unless he had summoned you into his presence. To do so, to enter in before him unless you had been invited by him, was to encourage certain death. It was a capital offense. The only exception to that rule would be if the king were in mercy to extend his golden scepter to you the moment you first enter into the throne room. Should he fail to do that, the guards would seize you and your life would come to an end. Esther had not been with the king for 30 days, the story tells us. It had been a month since she had even visited the royal bedchamber. But taking her life into her hands, she bravely entered into the throne room to plead the case of her people. 
At that exact moment when Xerxes first laid eyes on her, her life literally in the balance, the text tells us that he was stunned by her beauty and he extended the gold scepter to her and her life was spared. The story ends by telling us that Haman's plans were overturned. In fact, he was hung upon his own gallows. And in that story, we see a tremendous display of the providential rule of God over the circumstances of human history. How through this young and beautiful Jewish girl, he delivered his people from certain extinction. In that story, Esther was not sure about her standing before the king. She says, if I perish, I perish. She had no certainty at all that when she entered into that throne room that he would extend the scepter to her. He was a brutal man. No certainty at all. She had no idea whether he would look with her, look on her with favor and extend mercy to her or whether he would snuff out her life. He had a harem full of beautiful women. What is your confidence this morning before God? What is your confidence that he will ultimately accept you? When you enter into the royal throne room, the scripture says that it's appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. What is your sense of certainty? How do you know for sure that when you enter before your creator, that he will extend to you the golden scepter of mercy or not? How do you know? Do you know? Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter five. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles available that you can use in the pew racks. If you'll take one of those black Bibles out, you can open it up to page 1129 and you'll arrive at Romans chapter 5 and the text before us this morning. Appreciate uh, Joe and Kelly Jean reading it for us earlier. This text, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, serves a very important purpose in the argument of the Apostle Paul as he develops this book of Romans. I reviewed a good bit of it with you last week. I'm not going to take the time to do that again, other than to say that the early part, of course, of Romans chapters one, two and the early part of chapter three is all about bringing the world before the judgment of God, before the bar of his justice and finding them all to be guilty. Jew and Gentile. Standing condemned before their creator. No hope at all. Then, of course, beginning in the middle of chapter 3 and through chapter 4, Paul introduces the great doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. And he says that it is there in Jesus Christ, robed, if you will, in his righteousness, that we have a place of standing before God. Chapter 5 
is a continuation of that argument of justification. And it is designed to answer the most profound of questions. And that is, does this system work? Does justification by grace through faith alone really work? Is it secure when I enter to eternity? Will the golden scepter, as it were, be extended to me or not? What assurance do I really have? What assurance do I really have that if I'm going to give up on all of my efforts and I'm going to entrust myself entirely to another's, that it's really going to work? That it's really going to work? So in this text, Paul gives us six reasons. Six reasons why a Christian should have assurance of salvation so that we might live boldly for Jesus Christ. This chapter is about assurance of your faith. Assurance that you not only are sure that you believe, but you are sure that what you believe will hold up in the judgment. Last time we looked at the first reason, and it is there in verse 1. And the first reason that Paul tells us that we can be assured of our standing before God is because our justification has established peace between God and us. You see it there in verse 1. We have peace, he says, with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have gone from being God's enemies for God now to be our friends, and he is, in, he is at peace with us. We no longer have to fear his wrath. The peace treaty has been signed. That was last week. I don't know why I couldn't say it that shortly last week, but I couldn't. I can always say it shorter the second week. So there's two more for us this week in the text. We're going to be looking at verse 2 through the first part of verse 5. And there are two more reasons. The second one here in the beginning part of verse 2, that we can be assured of our position before God is because through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Paul says we are standing in grace. Verse 2, here it is. Through whom, that is Jesus Christ, through whom also we have, our, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. What does that mean? What is Paul's argument? He says we have obtained our introduction through Jesus Christ. Well, without laboring the grammar here too much, we will just point out that the verb obtained is a perfect tense verb and therefore expresses the idea of having a permanently obtained something. That what we have obtained through Jesus Christ by faith is something that is now permanently ours. Paul is communicating to us. Something we have received in the past and are continuing to possess right now up into the future. We have obtained in a permanent sense our introduction. Our introduction. Now, your text may not use the word introduction. It may use the word access. If that's so, that is a really good and valid translation of the particular underlying Greek word here. And in fact, the same word is translated over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, Ephesians 2 or 3, verse 12, by access. And so that word access is a very good word. It's a good choice for the translators. 
through Jesus Christ, we have permanently obtained our access by faith into this grace in which we stand. But the New American Standard, and that's the translation that I use and is the Pew Bibles, if you're using them and a choice of a number of you here in the fellowship together, has made a conscious choice to move away from the word access and to use the word introduction. Introduction. And the reason they've done that, I think, is because they want to convey a nuance of this particular Greek word that access just doesn't seem to gather up. The nuance that the word introduction, the English word introduction, brings out of the text, and I think an important enough one to spend a minute or two here talking about it, is that being brought into by faith this grace in which we stand, if we use the word introduction, that means we need an introducer. If we only translate it by access, we lose that additional understanding that it is not just something we come and go on our own is that we need an introducer. We need an introduction. First Peter chapter three, verse 18. Peter writes, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That he might bring us to God. That is, that he might introduce us, Peter says. Back to Romans. Through Jesus Christ, we have permanently obtained our introduction into this grace in which we stand. That is, that through Jesus Christ, we have been brought into something. You all know what it's like to... uh, to go to a social gathering in which you don't know anybody. Certain sense of anxiety involved in all of that, isn't there? You enter into a room, you don't know anybody in the room. There's nothing like having somebody along beside you, isn't there, who knows the people in the room and can provide an introduction for you. Hello, so-and-so, I'd like you to meet my friend. And they make an introduction. And then there's a relationship that immediately has been connected. Their close relationship with this other person allows them to introduce you, to draw you right into that same relationship. So we understand that in terms of just human relationships. I think that's what Paul is conveying here for us and an important thing. That it is through Jesus Christ that we get this introduction. And he brings us in and introduces us. By the way, in secular Greek, this same word, proskagogain, anyway, if somebody's keeping score, carries the idea of being introduced in the presence of a monarch. Entering into the presence of a monarch. You just don't walk into the throne room of the king and walk right up and extend your hand, right? Pleased to meet you, king. It requires an introduction, proper introduction. Someone must bring you in. Through Jesus Christ, verse 2, we have permanently obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
We've been introduced, Paul says, into grace. Into grace. Now, grace typically describes God's free and unmerited favor towards us. That which is uncoerced, meaning that you have no claim upon it. It's just given to you in an unmerited and free way. That is typically what grace means. But here, it's being used with a little bit different nuance. It's, it's not talking so much about the manner in which God acts, but the state or the sphere or the realm into which God's redeeming work in Jesus Christ transfers the believer. Stay with me on this. And maybe it helps if you can just keep in, the, in your mind there the whole idea of being brought before royalty. Look again at the text. Through Jesus Christ, we have permanently obtained our introduction by faith into a certain realm, a certain state, a certain sphere called grace in which we stand. This realm, this sphere, this state, this throne room, even if you like, is a place in which we are permanently, in which we permanently live. It's a, a new place in which we now permanently live. We have obtained a permanent indru- uh, introduction by faith into this grace. And then Paul says in which we stand. And again, he uses a perfect tense verb. The idea is that you are standing in there and you are continuing to stand in that new realm. You're living in a different place. Living in a different place. You have been introduced through Jesus Christ into the state of grace. The realm of grace. The throne room of grace. The idea here is not that you are just merely acquitted at the moment in which you have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's true. But you have gone beyond that and you are now living in a new, at a new locale. You are now living in the state of a person who lives in the, in the, in the realm of acquittal. The state of forgiveness. The sphere of constant forgiveness. You have moved from the sphere of condemnation residing under the wrath of God. And you have been transferred, Colossians calls it, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of what? God is blessed son, the kingdom of light. Into a new kingdom, a new realm, a new sphere. The sphere of grace. The kingdom of grace, the realm of grace. The place of constant and permanent Forgiveness. See, it's not just that God forgave your sins up to the moments in which you have trusted Jesus Christ, but you have been actually moved into a place where God is constantly forgiving your sin all the time. All the time. You're living in the land of forgiveness, if I could say it that way. The land of forgiveness. That, by the way, is the reason why in chapter 8, verse 33, Paul can say, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who can make a charge that will stick? 
The answer? Nobody. Because why? Well, because you're living in the kingdom of constant forgiveness. No charges can stick to you anymore. They're forgiven. You've not just been forgiven for the past. You are now living in the land of the forgiven. By the way, this is the same concept Paul's talking about over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, when he says to them, you have fallen from grace. You've fallen from grace if you want to go back to the law. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. In the Old Testament, the access to God was limited. Isn't that right? There was a very elaborate system by which one could approach the sovereign one, the creator, Yahweh. There were what is called, and I'm talking about the temple at this point, there was what was called uh, the court of the Gentiles, a really large area that that surrounded the outer part of the temple grounds, the court of the Gentiles. There, Gentiles who, who were attracted to the God of Israel could come and, and begin to come closer to him, but they could only come so far. And then there was a wall, actually a rather low wall that went all the way around it. And strategically placed along that wall and written out in several languages was a explicit warning that says that if you are not a Jew, if you are a Gentile and you cross beyond this wall, you do so under the pain of death. If you are found beyond the wall, you will be killed. The court of the Gentiles. You could come only so close. Next, moving in was the court of the women. Jewish women could come a little closer and there's another wall. Now, no signs beyond that. Okay. But there was another wall, another barrier. The women of the nation of Israel could only come a little closer. And then there was a court of the men. The men could come closer still. And then you arrived at what was called the holy place. And there only those of the priesthood, the sons of Levi, could come. And then there was a place where only one man could go. And him only once a year. And only under very controlled circumstances. The Holy of Holies. The throne room of God Himself. But Matthew's Gospel tells us, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, that on the cross when Jesus said... Tetelestai, it is finished that the veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the very throne room from, of God, from access to the world was torn in two from top to bottom, throwing the throne room wide open, symbolically, for entrance right into the presence of God. See, it is Jesus Christ who introduces you into the Holy of Holies. As a believer, as a new covenant believer, we enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God. An occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the very throne room. The very presence of the creator of the universe. Paul says, into this realm of grace in which we permanently Stand, never to leave again.
The idea that Paul's communicating here is that through Jesus Christ, we have an abiding and immovable status as children of the King. Access to the throne. Beloved, our standing before God is not like that of presidential approval ratings. You know how they go, right? You could have 60 or 70 or 80 percent approval. In fact, you can ask the current president. And it doesn't take very long before it's in the tank. You are not before your Creator this morning if you are wrapped in the robe of Jesus Christ. You are not like that. Your approval ratings with God do not go up and down based upon what you do. You are not like a pro quarterback whose popularity changes from Sunday to Sunday. Ask Eli Manning, by the way who was being skewered in the New York press earlier in the season and is now the greatest quarterback to ever play the game, right? Or ask Joe Namath, an earlier New York quarterback, when someone asked him, what's it like to be a professional quarterback? He said, it's a fascinating experience. You go from the penthouse to the outhouse from Sunday to Sunday. That's not how it is before God. That's not how it is. You are now permanently standing, living in the realm of constant forgiveness and unhindered access to God. What are the practical benefits of this firm standing in grace? Let me suggest a few for you. One is that you have confidence in your worship. There is a confident worship. That is that you can be always assured that God will accept you because you have the proper sacrifice. Those of you that are reading through the scriptures with us are reading in the book of Leviticus. And as you, you know, you get anything out of the book of Leviticus, what you walk away with is, man, it is really complicated. They come before God. There is all of these rules and regulations and requirements. And it's, you know, it's got to be this kind of animal and it's got to be this kind of perfection in the animal. And I come on this day and I don't come on that day and I can eat part of it and I can't eat part of it. And I got to give some of it. I got to wave it and I got to burn it. And I got, you know, it's pretty detailed kind of stuff, isn't it? When you woke up this morning, you didn't worry about any of that. You have confident access in your worship. You come before God assured that the sacrifice is always fully accepted, will never be turned back. Hebrews 4, verse 16, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. You enter into worship with confidence. Secondly, the practical benefit of standing firm in the realm of grace is that you have a confident prayer life. You have confidence in prayer. God will hear you and will answer. John 16, verse 23, if you ask anything 
or ask the Father for anything, He will give it to you in My name, He says. Confident access in prayer. Third, and listen carefully on this one. You have confidence in sin and confidence in cleansing. Confidence in sin and confidence in cleansing. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is when you sin and you do and you will, that your sin will not disrupt your standing before God. You will not be booted from the throne room at the moment of your sin. Luther says, go forth and sin boldly. Now, you're going to need to be careful with what you do with that. But he is speaking about the confidence of living in the constant realm of forgiveness. You are not going to do something that God is going to then throw you out of the family. Or you are not going to not do something that will cause you to be booted. There's a confidence even in your sin and there is a confidence in your cleansing that as you come to God and you know he will receive you and he will cleanse you of your sin. First John 1 John 1.9, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can confidently come before God for cleansing. By the way, I cannot commend to you enough. The work by uh, a friend of ours, Milton Vincent, called The Gospel Primer. We gave it away to all of you who are here on Christmas Eve two years ago. I want to let you know it has been expanded and republished. It is available in the bookstore, and I would suggest if you don't have a copy, you go get one. And you read and meditate and think upon this issue of your confidence before God in sin and cleansing. Now, let me just take a moment to acknowledge this because this can make people a little uncomfortable. I don't want you to go away from here and somehow think that I just gave you license to steal, okay? I did not. There is a concern that arises in people's minds. Well, if you tell somebody that, that, you know, they can confidently sin because they're going to be confidently cleansed in Christ, then you've just given them wide open license to go do whatever they want to do. Just sin away because you're constantly forgiven. Antinomianism, I can hear it now. We need the law to keep people in check. <sighs> Silly you. Hang in there until we get to chapter 6 of Romans, where Paul will pick up that same issue, right? And he will say, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May geneta, may it never be. No, 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 no. That's a, that's a kind of a colloquial way to translate that Greek, by the way. Okay. Paul will deal with it. Just hang on. Okay, hang on. Preachers of grace are always in danger of being accused of antinomianism. The fourth benefit, a fourth benefit that comes of our firm standing in grace 
is that we have hope eternally and temporally. And that takes us back to Romans 5, the second half of verse 2. Third reason. We rejoice in hope, Paul says. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. There's your third reason. The third reason for your assurance of salvation has to do with your future hope. Your future hope. Paul says we exalt there in the end of verse two or translated perhaps rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We are introduced here to the concept of Christian hope. Now, Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's not thinking, boy, I sure wish the Cowboys had won the Super Bowl. I wish they'd have just been in the Super Bowl, but that's another. Okay, that would be wishful thinking. We're not talking about that. What we are talking about is a is a confident and jubilant expectation based upon the character of God. That's Christian hope. It's solid stuff. Paul says we exalt, that is, we rejoice in a confident, jubilant way in hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's His honor and magnificence on display through all of His perfections. It is the, it is the character of God on display. That's His glory. And Paul says here that we, we rejoice, we exalt, we are confident and jubilant in this glory. What does that mean? What does it mean? Well, the glory of God today in the world is somewhat veiled. It is somewhat veiled by the consequences of the fall. It's not on its full and brightest display. Oh, it's still there. Romans 1 says, right, that the, that the heavens display the glory of God, and they do. So it's not that His glory is completely shrouded, but it is not in its brightest display because of the fall. But at the consummation of redemption, when Christ returns, all sin will then be properly punished and righteousness will reign upon this earth. And at that point, the prophets say the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, when Christ returns, all the stuff that's messed up in this world will be straightened back out. That's why I say that the glory of God is, is not on its fullest and brightest display. It's, it's somewhat obscured because of sin. When Christ returns, beloved, the Scripture is very clear. It says there will be no more famine. No more disease. No more poverty. No more crime. No more broken homes. No more blasphemy. No more idolatry. All unbelief will be done away with. And in its place will come justice, prosperity, peace, security, uninhibited access to God and perfect relationships among people. That will be the brightness and the fullness of His glory on display. 
all that's wrong with the world now will be done away with. It's going to be a glorious time, isn't it? By the way, the Bible calls that the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom. The rule of Christ on earth. Paul says we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. But great as those days will be, beloved, when, when all of the social and societal and, and worldwide economic problems are resolved, and great and glorious as that will be, it goes even deeper than that. It goes down to a personal level in each and every one of us. And Paul says we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Presently, we are sinners justified by faith and continuing to struggle with sin in our lives. Isn't that true? We don't do what we want to do. Our aspirations for God are more noble than our deeds many times. I love Christ, but I don't love Him like I want to love Him. Praise God, I love Him more than I once did. Paul's saying here that we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. At a personal level, what he is saying is that the struggle in your life today with the ever-present reality of sin will be no more. There'll be no more. Romans 8, verses 18 through 23. I'm not going to even turn you there. We'll get there eventually. Unless Christ returns first, praise the Lord. We'll be delivered from all of this. What Paul's telling us here is it's going to get really good out there, but it's going to get even better in here. It's going to be really good on the inside. God's glory will someday be fully revealed to us and in us and through us. We will be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Made like Him. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him just as He is. Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. We will be made like Jesus Christ. All of the effect of sin that continues to torment your soul will be undone. The Bible calls it glorification. You will be glorified. Presently, you are a rebel sinner justified by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the vestiges of your rebellion remain with you. When Christ returns, the hope of glory, that will all be burned away. You will now be a submissive servant of God with sin and corruption but a distant memory. Praise God. But if that's not good enough for you, 
Paul goes on and says, and not only this, verse 3, but we also exalt, we also rejoice with confidence in our tribulations. Knowing the tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Paul's drawing a circle of hope here. He's saying you are confident in the eventual work of God in you to make, him, make you like His Son, Jesus Christ. And in that hope of glory, you long with confident expectation. It is your assurance that justification by faith has really worked. You are really going to be changed. But Paul says, it's not just pie in the sky by and by. Not only this, but you also exalt in your tribulations. Plipsis in the Greek. Plipsis. It means pressure. Pressure. The word is used of squeezing olives in an olive press. Paul saying that not only this, but you rejoice in being squeezed in the olive press. Okay? This is your assurance of salvation. Now, these pressures are not just the pressures of life to which all mankind is subjected. He is speaking about a more specific, a more unique pressure. A pressure that comes as a result of your following Jesus Christ. Hence the translation, tribulations. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insult at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. One of my favorites, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, for momentary light affliction. And by the way, that comes in the context of Paul describing how he has been suffering for Christ. Momentary light affliction, he says, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says, again, Romans 5, 3, not only do we exalt in the future glorification of our body, we exalt today in our persecution and tribulations. By the way, he's not speaking about just in the situation of our tribulation. We are an exalt in the fact that we are in a situation of being persecuted. But we actually exalt in the very persecution itself. Same grammatical construction, by the way, is down in verse 11 where he says we exalt in God. That is, we exalt in God himself. Here he's saying we exalt in the actual tribulation itself. It is the basis of your exaltation, your persecution. So how is it that a Christian can rejoice in what is so obviously painful and potentially deadly? How is that possible? To rejoice in that which brings such pain and agony and potential life-threatening circumstances to you. How can you possibly say, praise the Lord, I rejoice in this tribulation? The answer lies in understanding God's purpose for them. 
Understanding God's purpose. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Perseverance. Patience, Paul says, is brought about as a direct result of this tribulation. You see it? Verse 3. We share in His holiness through the discipline of persecution, and that's why we can rejoice in it, because we know that it produces something in us. And what it produces here in the text, verse 3, is perseverance, perhaps translated patience in your text. Hupomone in the Greek. Hupomone. It's translated endurance many times. It produces endurance in us. It's the virtue of hanging in there in the face of strong opposition or great obstacles. It's comprised of two words, hupo meaning under and mone meaning abode or living place. And so what it means is living under something. Patience, perseverance, endurance is living under something. What is it that Paul says that you are living under? Again, verse 3, you are living under tribulation. Living under tribulation. That is, as a Christian, you can rejoice in tribulation because you know that God is doing something through it. And so you can live under it with endurance instead of trying to wiggle out from underneath it. God's doing something in your life. He's bringing about an improvement in your character. John Stott, writing on this, says we could never learn endurance without suffering because without suffering, there is nothing to endure. And endurance or perseverance, verse four, brings about proven character. You see it and proven character, hope. When we endure tribulation, we can rejoice in it because we know that it is bringing about a change in our character. It is now going to be proven. It's going to be demonstrable to the world. Beloved, tribulation brings about this change in our character, this demonstrable character of endurance, which in and of itself demonstrates our kinship to Christ. It demonstrates our kinship to Jesus Christ. Peter says, for you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So you prove your kinship to Jesus Christ. Paul's arguing for your assurance of salvation. Do you want to know that you are assured of your standing before God? How do you respond in tribulation? And the very fact that you are receiving tribulation in itself is a sign of your kinship, right? Because you are being persecuted for your stand for Christ. And then how you respond to that persecution further demonstrates the work of the Spirit within you. That you're His. Christ-like character is flowing out from you. So rather than being the source of despair and discouragement, it instead becomes something that we can rejoice in. 
Hope is like a muscle. It's like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets, right? The less it's used, the more it atrophies. Paul's saying that in the midst of all of this, as you continue to hope in God, you will become strengthened. It's probably no more vivid illustration, I don't think, than the church in China. The church in China. When the missionaries were kicked out at the end of the Second World War under Mao Zedong, there was a Christian presence in China. And then the bamboo curtain, if you will, dropped down and it was a time of intense persecution in China for the believers. Eventually, the curtain was raised again and Western missionaries and Westerners were allowed back in. Western missionaries only under cover of darkness, but Westerners were allowed back in. And what they report back to us now is not that the church was exterminated under the persecution, but in fact, the very church itself did what? It grew. It grew. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It grew. How do I apply all this? How do I apply this circle of hope? This hope in the future that Paul says now enables us also to exalt in the present in our tribulations because we know they bring about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope we get from hope to hope. What do I do with it all? Let me suggest a few things for you. One, become conversant with what the Bible teaches about the end times. Become conversant with what the Bible says about the end times. It does matter. God wants you to know because it is a source of hope. Second, long and pray for the return of Jesus Christ. Maranatha, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Oh, Lord, come. Does your heart long for the return of Jesus Christ? Do you really want him to come? Do you pray for him to come? Do you plead with God to draw it all to an end? The book of Revelation closes, by the way, Revelation 22:20, 20, with these words, Come, Lord Jesus. Come. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Paul says, Comfort one another with these words. What words? The words about the return of Christ for the rapture of the church. What do I do with this hope? How do I apply it in my life? I keep my eyes fixed on the finish line. I don't find my satisfaction in that which is going to burn. I hope, I pray, I long, I speak of the return of Christ. Beloved Christian, hope is strengthened in the fires of tribulation. Paul says that hope does not disappoint. Verse 5. It does not disappoint. Do you have that kind of hope this morning? Do you have that kind of hope? Do you long 
for the return of Jesus Christ. If you don't, would you like to? Would you like to? After we sing this last closing song, there'll be some folks standing over here by this lighted cross. They're there to minister to you, to open the Word of God with you, to show you how you can have this hope, how you can know for sure if you know Christ, but there's something going on in your life where you'd like someone to pray with you or for you. They'd be happy to do that for you. There's a, behind that door there, there's a room where you can go and sit and pray. You can pray alone, have someone come and pray with you. It'll all be a very private matter. That's fine. Beloved, if the Lord is speaking to your heart this morning, don't stick your fingers in your ears. Don't stick your fingers in your ears. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for a time in your word this morning and for the assurance to know that through the Lord Jesus Christ, wrapped in his robe of righteousness, that I have permanent access, permanent standing in the very throne room of grace. And that I can hope in the future and know that what is in the here and the now is not all that I've got to look forward to, but there is a glorious future coming for me and that even the problems of this life, the troubles and tribulations that come to me because of my stand for Christ are being used by you to make me more like my Savior. Thank you for such tender mercy, for such loving care. We praise you in the name of that one, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.